Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen concludes her conversation with Dr. Josh Coleman about parent-child estrangement. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Shattuck for another episode. Today, our topic is going to be parent-child estrangement, and I am going to be speaking with a psychologist who is an expert in this area. I will be interviewing Dr. Josh Coleman. He is a psychologist in private practice in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he has written quite a few books, four of them, in fact, along with also writing articles for the New York Times. The Atlantic, NBC Think, CNN, San Francisco Chronicle, Psychology Today, and many other ones. The books that he has written that are most relevant to what we'll be talking about today are The Rules of Estrangement, which was published by Random House, and also When Parents Hurt, Compassionate Strategies When You and Your Grown Child Don't Get Along. His books have been translated into numerous other other languages. He is also the father of three children himself. I think this is a really important topic for us to be learning about because parent-child estrangement, at least in the United States, is on the rise. So please stay tuned. Dr. Josh Coleman will be coming right up. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am here with Dr. Coleman for part two of our discussion about parent-child estrangement. We focused in our first episode on why this is on the rise, looking at cultural factors, and a variety of other factors such as divorce and things that seem to create a higher incidence of this. Today, we're going to talk more about what to do about this. Like, is this fixable, Dr. Coleman? Um, Well, often it is, but it isn't always fixable. I mean, if we're talking about the parent, um, typically, as I mentioned in part one, um, usually it's the parent that approaches me because typically it's the adult child who's doing the doing the estranging. Um, and in terms of the research, when adult children show up for therapy around estrangement, it's more to kind of reduce their feelings of shame or guilt about it. Um, whereas when parents show up for therapy around it, it's usually to get strategies to, to fix it. To heal the pain, certainly, but the most important thing they want to know is, okay, yeah, so what do I do? Um, So if it's the path that I'm working with, um, there are a number of important factors. I mean, it usually ends up in in my helping the parent write the adult child a letter of amends. And that is a, a process whereby the parent really tries to do a deep dive into why the adult child has cut off contact, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. If the adult child has written something, you know, I'm interested in looking at that, or if the parent could just tell me what the adult child's complaints are. Um, all that has to be brought into the letter of amends, and it has to be done in a non 
non-defensive, non-blaming, non-explanatory way, more just um, these are clearly mistakes of mine um, that I regret. And um, I could see why you would feel like this was the healthiest thing for you to do, to cut off contact uh, with me um, and am committed to doing a better job going forward or hearing more about what your thoughts or feelings are, et cetera. Now, parents don't always know what the reason is. Some parents are just ghosted, uh, which is completely maddening for the parent. Or other adult children say, which I think is also irresponsible, well, they should just know. I mean, maybe they should just know if the adult child's been telling them for the past three years and the parent keeps acting like they haven't heard it. But often parents don't, or sometimes parents don't know. And I think it's reasonable for them to want the adult child to explain why. So in those situations for the parent, doesn't know, then I would encourage the parent to write something like just writing to to check in with you to see if there's a way to open up a dialogue with you. It's clear that I have significant blind spots that I don't have a better understanding of why you need this time away. I know you wouldn't take it unless it was the healthiest thing for you to do. That said, I would like to have a better understanding. Would you consider writing me or telling me more about what your thoughts or feelings are. I promise to read or listen purely in order to understand and not in any way to defend myself. Um, love, mom, dad, etc. So in, in both letters, the goal is to let the adult child know that the parent is open to listening, to learning, um, to not being defensive. And those letters are important because younger generations are very much in the the um, pure relationship, the egalitarian, psychologically minded, preservation of mental health, growth oriented perspective on relationships. And the parent may not be. I mean, even boomer parents like, like you know, myself, who have a growth orientation, even as a therapist, you know, didn't don't have that orientation nearly as much as the younger younger generations do. So I think they're really like on hyper drive in terms of this this whole thing and that anything that doesn't contribute to that um, is grounds for dismissal. Uh, so I think that that is probably the single most important thing that a, that a parent can do because you want to begin to, to open the dialogue. Now, not... Not all adult children are open or willing, tragically. Um, some are just too negatively influenced by the person that they're married to, or they're too brainwashed by the, by the parent's ex, or they're too, the child, adult child is too influenced by the, their own mental illness, or the needs to separate are too, too dramatic, or they, for whatever reason, feel too hurt and skeptical of the parent's motivations to let them in. So, so they don't always work, but my experience is that if anything is going to begin a dialogue it would be that. Yes, and I want to point out that what you're suggesting with the amends letter and my understanding is because I can imagine some parents saying, but I didn't do this and I didn't abuse them. And I'm, I, as far as I know, I'm not a narcissist. That might be a ridiculous statement because who says they are, but, um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, I think that what you're, my understanding from what I've read is you're saying acknowledge that even if there's just a kernel of truth, you need to acknowledge this is their experience of you. This right. is not necessarily that you're saying you agree with all of this or or that you did this laundry list of things, but you really right. do have to take the perspective of impact on them. Right. 
Well, that's why I like the phrase it's clear that I had blind spots, because it's a way to say maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe I, you know, maybe you, I really was abusive in ways. I mean, I think the separate realities nature of family life is also a useful concept that a parent could reasonably, even objectively feel like they raised their children in a good, loving, healthy environment. And the adult child, now adult child could reasonably feel like they missed something important that they wish the parent had done differently, you know, been more involved, less involved, push them harder, push them less, et cetera. Um, so, so I think that that's hugely important. But the other thing that I think is confounding for parents is the way that words like emotional abuse, trauma, harm, neglect, et cetera, have been transformed in the past three decades in particular. Uh, there's been an enormous expansion of what we consider to be harmful abuse of traumatic behavior. So a lot of parents who really were, you know, at least in comparison to other generations, fairly ideal, and certainly in comparison to their own were fairly ideal, when they said, told that they were emotionally abusive, you know, they feel like, well, you know, I had an abusive childhood. I had one. I'm not saying I did. But the parent, a lot of parents feel like that. You know, alcoholic father, absent mother. You know, your, your childhood was like freaking Disneyland. Um, so how can you say it was emotionally abusive, which, as you can imagine, isn't very persuasive to the adult child who's saying they felt yes. emotionally abused. So the parent has to learn that it's really not about them. It's about the adult child and their narrative. And and why they need to kind of have this narrative. Sometimes it is that the parent isn't seeing or acknowledging the ways that they were harmful. Sometimes the definitions have changed, but sometimes for some people, they need to have a narrative of abuse to explain why their lives haven't turned out as well. And um, so if a parent can kind of take the hit and absorb that, it allows the adult child to shed the shame from themselves and sort of put some of it on the parent, um, which actually can make for a better relationship. If the parent says, well, maybe we did miss that. Maybe, maybe you're right. You know, if we had been more involved, you would be better with relationships or with managing money or, you know, you would be further along in life. You know, even if the parent can objectively feel like, well, we paid for your colleges and tutors and everything else. Um, you know, from the adult child's perspective, the parent owning some of that shame can be very relieving and that can facilitate um, a connection as well. So, um, but yeah, I want to highlight that the, the, and there was a study by Nick Haslam, an Australian psychologist um, called Concept Creep, where he talks about, he actually charts the way that there's been this enormous expansion of what we're calling traumatic, harmful, abusive behavior in the DSM, for example. Um, so, so what that means is that a lot of adult children who are in therapy are like, you know, lining up with their holy Bibles of the DSM with their parents and saying, well, my therapist says that you're a narcissist or a borderline or a sociopath, and here's the evidence. Um, and the parents is like, well, not in my day. None of those things would have been true. Yes. Well, that is a very good lead in because I want to go a little more deeply because into the role of therapists in this, because a lot of our listeners are therapists. And um, I know that in my training years ago, we were taught cut off is bad. Like one quote I remember was we don't do well cut off from our roots like we it, it's bad like you do not now boundaries yes right. definitely there need to be boundaries and sometimes those need to be set pretty strongly but the idea in my training as a therapist that I would encourage cut off in anything but the most dangerous and abusive situation was not something that was embraced yeah yeah 
So that doesn't seem to be the case today from what I'm reading from even therapists online and kids saying what their therapist said in different places on the internet. No, I think, right. on that? I, I think you're right. I'm just heartened that you got that training that that way you were even trained in that way. Just, it seems like such a kind of quaint approach, doesn't it? <laughs> Given the current era of, uh, of cutoffs. No, I think therapists are, you know, we don't exist outside the current culture. And so we've sort of drank the Kool-Aid that that feelings of guilt or responsibility or duty or obligation or somehow toxins that should be, you know, that the individual should be protected from. And worse, that sort of cutting off people is an act of a, a kind of, you know, assertive, a healthy, psychologically minded person who's not going to take crap from anybody, um, you know, rather than it being what it often is, which is really just an embrace of avoidance. And, you know, rather than teaching people how to tolerate anxiety or negotiate more closely for their needs or show empathy for those who can't give us what what we want or teach them how to give us what they want were made to feel like you know you owe people nothing um there's an important book by the uh, political theorist uh, yashna monk called the age of responsibility and monk talks about the fact that in the past 40 years um we've gone from the notion of responsibility as something of duty and obligation to others including family to one that's much more like much more meritocratic in the sense that you people have to earn their way and he talks about it from kind of a social welfare perspective that you know the poor have to earn their right to get welfare it's not something that they're just we should just help them because they're poor and we're not you know there's a larger society uh, but i see a similar thing with family with, with adult children saying well i don't owe you anything you know and in fact if you hurt me or traumatize me then that completely invalidates any obligation um, that i have to you and so so the whole notion of responsibility has been contorted and i feel like many therapists are lining up behind that view in a way that's fracturing our society and families. Yes. Um, one of your articles, you were you talked about, as you just alluded to, that therapists are part of the culture. And so we are aligning with the idea that you need to support this no responsibility anyone it's all about your own what self-actualization whatever we want to call it um i don't think maslow would have thought this was self-actualization. But, but 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 you know the idea like that that's what we're supporting our clients in being totally aligned with their their desire to have their needs met above all else right exactly yeah, and it's 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 highly problematic, and it's it's sort of making us increasingly alienated and atomized as a society, and we're not really teaching. You know, there's so much discussion about trauma, but very little discussion about the way that the parent is being traumatized when the adult child cuts off contact from them or from the uh, you know from the grandchildren. So it, it's good for us to be thinking about trauma, but but we have to think about it in a much more 360 degree ways. We can't only be thinking about the client who's sitting in front of us. We also have to think about the advice we're giving and how it's going to impact the other people in that family. Now, obviously, you know, the client is going to be the person sitting in front of us. So it makes sense. Yes. That's going to be our primary obligation. And I would never tell a client, oh, think of your poor mother, you know, right. <laughs> right. 
And I do think helping people develop um, a more, a deeper understanding for why parents or anybody makes the decisions that they make um, can be really useful for them because it also can help them to not feel like, to take it as personally or to feel like it's, well, maybe my parents didn't even love me or if they treated me like that. You know, knowing that the parents... Uh, problematic behaviors came from a place, place of the parents' own pain, I think it'd be very therapeutic. Yes, and I think um, we'd be remiss if we didn't elaborate a little further on your comment about grandchildren, because that is a generational, if there is not reconciliation, which you know we hope that there could be, although it takes a lot of skill and handling this carefully, <laughs> um, but uh, Sure. The impact of a child not having a grandparent experience. Um, I read one article that was just about that alone, like the impact of that. And it, there is an impact for grandchildren, isn't there? Yeah, there's an enormous impact. I mean, the bond between a grandparent and a grandchild is incredibly strong and intense and unique. And it's a place of shared innocence and vulnerability and allows them both to have an experience that they can't have, um, you know, with anybody else. Um, so when that's torn, um, it's a trauma, not only to the grandparent, it's a profound trauma to the grandparent, but, but it's a trauma to the grandchild as well. And this is another way that I think that too many adult children today conflate their own happiness with that of their adult children when they cut off um, a, a grandparent from a grandchild because they're not happy with the their parents' behavior. There's this presumption that, well, if it's not good for me, it's not good for my children. Well, that's sort of silly, isn't it? I mean, if the grandparent is... Um, abusive and you know screaming in an alcoholic rage at, at their parent. I mean that question nobody wants to. No children should be exposed to that. It's understandable that 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 those grandparents would be limited in terms of, of contact, um, etc. But a lot of the time, when grand grandchildren are uh, the grandparent grandchild relationship is a um, a cost of it's collateral damage of the parent adult child estrangement, and they're a, a package deal in the in most cases. In most cases, if the adult child cuts off the parent, they'll also cut off access to the grandchildren at, with this kind of idea that, well, if it's not good for me, it's not good for my children. But I, that's, so I just think it's highly problematic because, you know, first of all, you're not really teaching your kids that conflict is just a part of being in any family. This idea that children have to be raised in this very pristine environment where there's no conflict, first of all, doesn't really prepare them much for conflict in the outside world. But second of all, you know, you know, a parent should be able to say, well, look, you know, grandma's great. You know, she's a great grandmother. She adores you. You adore her. Your grandma, and I, you know, your, your grandma and I have, have issues, so we don't always get along so well. Um, maybe you can tell. Maybe you can't. Uh, that sometimes just happens in families. But, you know, but she loves you. So, we're, so as a way to facilitate the conversation or have access, I mean, maybe you wouldn't say the parent wouldn't say anything about the grandparent grandchild relationship. Um, but the idea that a cutoff is somehow a better thing for ch children, particularly a lot of the grandparents in my practice were very loving, involved, dedicated grandparents prior to the estrangement. So the idea that that is somehow that cutoff is somehow, you know, less consequential than um, whatever conflict is existing between the parent and adult child. I think it's just wrongheaded. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So. 
What do you recommend to, well, first of all, I recommend everybody read all your books, but especially <laughs> your two that focus on this topic. I know that I have learned so much from them and recognize that I had some of the assumptions um, that many would have like, oh, well, how could this happen unless there's definitely significant abuse? And, you know, of course, the person would want to, I didn't think cut off, but set very firm, clear boundaries and things like that. And, and obviously, in some cases, cut off. So I am concerned um, now that I have this awareness from reading your materials and researching this, I see things in forums out there <laughs> that I no, are not. I mean, I'm no expert on this. You are, but I, I've learned enough from you that, <laughs> that some of this advice is not good. Oh, so, a lot of it is terrible. Like, like, I mean, yeah. you know, like just keep contacting them and then these people end up with restraining orders for example okay you know that's right. not always the solution or you know um well just lot, lots of different things um you're talking, right? about, you're talking about advice for the parents right therapist like if if somebody comes into your office with this yeah. issue i think that you can't just think okay i'll handle this like i would any other relationship i guess what i'm trying to get across okay. is yeah. the complexity of this and needing specialized training in how to handle this i guess is what i'm saying would you would you agree with that 100 agree with that yeah i mean the therapist that i saw when my daughter had estranged me was a kind of world-renowned psychoanalyst he was brilliant and very helpful to me in almost every other way but this his advice was you know terrible it's kind of like what you were saying oh just show up at her door or remind her of all the good things that you did or you need to be more assertive with her. I mean, all the things that were just made things worse, worse and worse. It was really only empathy and caring about her perspective and compassion and taking responsibility, you know, that that worked. But no, you're right. These cases are always incredibly complex. Uh, you can't just do the the usual things that would work, say, for marital advice or friendship advice or, or whatever, even sibling estrangements. I mean, the parent, particularly parent-adult-child estrangements, uh, they're... they're uh, the therapist has to really understand a how little power the parent has, b how much pain they're in, c how much shame they have, um, and d how much the adult. It has to be on the adult child's terms. Um, so anything that doesn't recognize those things is just bound bound to fail. I'm so glad you brought that up because we haven't mentioned that earlier in the podcast. You know, with the I, the amends letter and and these different approaches that. The, the children, if parents are coming in are distraught about this and upset about severing a relationship with their grandchildren as well, you have acknowledged in your methods, but they don't have the power. The, the, the child who initiated the estrangement has the power. And right. it's not going to be like this, you know, 50-50 relationship or what we like to say now, 100-100, we're both, you know, giving fully. It, that That is not the dynamic that is being dealt with here. 
No, not at all. No. And often when I'm preparing a parent for reconciliation therapy, if I can get the adult child to come into fit to family therapy with me, I'll prep both about what it's going to look like. I'll say to the parent, this is not marriage therapy. It's not like, as you're saying, the hundred hundred. It's not like you each have an equal claim to outcome or even empathy. Um, it's much more like divorce therapy where, you know, one person is left and they're willing to give them, you know, give it another shot, but it's going to be on their terms. It's basic game theory that the person who has who cares the most has the least amount of power and the person who's willing to walk so from the adult child side there's enormous upsides to to an estrangement i mean they can feel empowered they can feel like they're pushing back against what they experienced rightly or wrongly is abusive behavior they can feel like they're protecting their mental health their self-esteem they have support from their therapist from the larger culture for the parent there's no upside it's all downside it's all shame guilt remorse regret hurt fear. So that also incredibly imbalances of the situation. So I think people who are doing family therapy need to know that it's, you know, both people aren't going to get an equal say. And I'll tell the adult child that as well, in part to, to kind of encourage them to do the family therapy, because a lot of times adult children who might do it won't start because they're worried they're going to be made to feel too guilty or mm. too responsible for the parents. Yeah. So you're wanting to create safety for, for the adult child who's made this choice too. Absolutely. And I'll tell both people, I have the adult child's back. And I'll tell the parent, if push comes to shove, I'm going to protect your adult child's well-being, partly because, you know, the buck stops with us as parents. And I feel like that's the right thing to do. Um, but second of all, I want to make sure that the adult child feels protected and safe enough to come back for another session so the dialogue continue can continue. And my experience is if, you know, we can get through the first couple of sessions and a lot of parents have need a lot of help and not to defending, not explaining, not pushing back, uh, not guilt tripping. Uh, if we can get to that point, then often there is more room for the parent, for me to begin to advance more of the parent's perspective, uh, but more importantly, the feedback loop, how the adult child triggers in the parent the thing that they don't want. You know, the subtle ways that they're rejecting of the parent, which causes the parent to be critical or act wounded, which causes the adult child to feel guilty, which causes the adult child to withdraw. So th those dynamics are important to highlight. You just can't start there. Yes. Well, I want to ask you two questions to wrap <laughs> up. And one is, is there ever a circumstance where a parent comes to you and you don't recommend trying to pursue reconciliation and you know writing the amends letter and things well i mean certainly um if a parent is getting letters of restraint restraining orders or they're getting gifts or letters sent back unopened um um, or every time they contact the adult child, the adult child gets, gets enraged because they feel so unheard. In those situations, I wouldn't, the parent, I typically encourage the parent to just let the line go cold for a year or so. And I might encourage the parent to do let, to do that if they've been trying for several years and they've gotten nothing, but but not if they haven't done an amends letter. Because I have had luck with with some parents who haven't talked to their their adult children for a number of years and they write a really good amends letter and it does open the door. So I think it's almost always a good place to start. But I wouldn't start there if if, if things are so inflamed that you know there's there's restraining orders or something like that involved. Okay. And so your website, obviously, you have a lot of resources there, both for parents and therapists, your books. Are you doing any specific training for therapists um, in addition to all the work that you do with parents? 
Yeah, I hope to do um, do one in early March for therapists. Uh, probably okay. The- the, probably the first Sunday in March. Okay. I, I just did an all-day training for the uh, Jewish Orthodox group um, um, Nefesh in New Jersey last weekend, uh, which was fun. Had a lot of a lot of therapists show up, um, and I've done a couple other ones online. Um, so yeah, no. So I do plan to. I'm also um, have a Facebook site for parents who want, or therapists rather who are wanting to learn more. Just so parent therapists can network and talk about cases and the likes. That's on on Facebook. Um, so yeah. And, and so, I want people to know, even though you're based in San Francisco, you do coaching with parents around this topic all over the country. So people could also reach out directly to you. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. I greatly appreciate you giving your time to us today around this important, but often unspoken about topic. Yeah. The other thing I should just mention. Karen is the, um, I also have webinars that I do every Tuesday night and every other week, every other Monday, free Q and a for estranged parents, yes. uh, 1130 to 1230 Pacific. So, uh, and you do also have a Facebook group for parents, a private Facebook for estranged parents and grandparents that you can also access through my website. So yeah, so there are, as you mentioned earlier, there are lots of resources. So, yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for your time. Yeah. It's great talking to you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 